0: Today's passage is Genesis chapter 50, verses 15 through 21. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. So they sent a message to Joseph, saying, Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin, because they did evil to you. And now, please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for I am in the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good, to bring it about, that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear, I'll provide for you and your little ones. Thus, he comforted them and spoke kindly to them.
1: My name is Steve, I'm the associate pastor here for this community, and this morning we are going to wrap up a series that we've been in this summer, this series in the book of Genesis, and so we got a lot to cover today and a short amount of time to do it. So I'm going to pray, and then we're just going to go for it from there. So pray with me now. Father, thank you for the time that we've gotten to spend in this book, this ancient text that is still so relevant to where we are today. And so this morning, as we finish this study, as we finish the book, as we tie it all together, God, would you continue to speak to us through your word? Would you help us to see the big picture, the big picture of redemption, this big story that you are telling Help us to see our place in that as well and how you move through that, how you work through all the circumstances of life to bring about your purposes. Help us to hear what we need to hear this morning and not just to hear God, but to act on what we need to act on. We ask all this in Jesus' strong name, amen. All right, I don't know if you guys have seen any of these or if you've noticed this, but there's a number of articles that are kind of floating around out there right now that are asking the question, is 2016 the worst year ever? (laughs) And you can probably guess why some arguments are made for this. There's obviously been a lot of just crazy stuff that's been happening in our world. The good news is one of these articles points out that actually 1348 was worse. So we at least have that going for us, right? 2016, at least it's not 1348. I find this to be a really interesting question because by a lot of different measurements, life for most people today is better than at any other point in human history. Now, I don't say this lightly. I don't say this to minimize anybody's suffering or to make light of anyone's situation, and we still have a long, long, long way to go, right? But when you look at things like hunger, disease spreading, you look at child mortality, there's all different kinds of ways to look at this. And by most accounts, the reality is is that a lot of these things are getting better. And yet, you turn on your TV, you look at your newsfeed, whatever those things might be for you that gives you information, and the lead thing is usually something really terrible, right? And so we live in this tension between maybe the best time to be alive and yet this overwhelming sense that everything is falling apart. And what's, I think the outcome of all of that is this deep sense of pessimism that is pervading our culture. It's almost like a fog that has descended on us, and we're just kind of walking around in this cloud of pessimism. And what's interesting to me is that I've seen a lot of Christians, a lot of people who are claiming to follow Jesus, fall into this culture of pessimism. And yet, for those of us who follow Jesus, who believe that God became a man and lived among us and died and then came back from the dead, we of all people, we have something to hold on to. We have something to share. We have hope. In the book of Hebrews, we read faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things. Not seen, And I think the key three words in that verse for our particular moment in history is things not seen. Because there's a lot of things that we see, right, that determine how we think the world is going. It's easy to see things that feed this culture of pessimism. And yet, we worship a God who is alive, who is active, who says that heaven is breaking through all the time, all around us. I think we're wise to remember the words of Jacob that we saw last week in our study. Surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Do you have the eyes to see where God is at work? Even in the midst of so many things that seem to be going wrong. Again, our God is active, is involved. He's up to something in this world. Our hope is in the one who is making all things new. And so, as Jesus followers, we must resist this culture of pessimism. And not that we live in denial or that we sugarcoat everything, and, oh, everything's great and fine, don't worry, it's all good. No, but we're realistic about what's going on, but we are also hopeful. Our story is not a story of cynicism. It is not a story of pessimism. And I think one of our heroes in this resistance is this guy named Joseph. We're going to look at his story. His story takes up a good portion of the end of the book of Genesis. And so if you have your Bible, turn back to Genesis chapter 37. That's where we're going to start this morning. And we're going to look at how Joseph is an example for us of resisting this culture of pessimism. Now, just quick review, you'll remember the book of Genesis, the majority of this book follows the story of a family, the family that God chooses to be his vehicle of blessing, his vehicle of redemption for this creation that has gotten off track. It begins when he chooses this guy named Abraham to be the father of this family. From Abraham comes a nation, descendants too numerous to count. Abraham has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. It's Jacob who becomes the namesake for this group of people. We saw this last week, right? Israel. That's how they will be known from this point on. We see that this family is incredibly dysfunctional, and that only continues as the focus turns now from Jacob to his sons. If you actually flip back a little bit farther into Genesis 35, you see that Jacob, now known as Israel, has 12 sons. These 12 sons will become the namesakes of the 12 tribes of Israel. That's how this nation will begin to organize itself as you move through the Old Testament story. So Genesis 35 verses 23 to 26 talk about these 12 sons and help explain the origin of the tribes. Now one of the major issues of dysfunction that we've seen in this family is the issue of favoritism. And favoritism just seems to keep coming back over and over again. It rears its ugly head here in chapter 37. So remember, Jacob worked 14 years to win the hand of Rachel in marriage. He was sort of duped into also marrying her sister Leah. And we learned that Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah. And that favoritism goes beyond the wives even to their children. And so Jacob favors the sons that come from Rachel. Look at verse 3, chapter 37. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. This verse adds the detail that Joseph was one of the last sons born to Jacob. There will actually be one more after him. His name is Benjamin and it's in giving birth to Benjamin that Rachel dies. So there's this sentimental reasoning around the preference of these final two sons and then also the fact that they come from Rachel. Favoritism has not worked out very well for this family to this point, right? didn't work out well for Isaac and Rebekah. Remember they favored these two sons, Jacob and Esau. didn't work out well for Jacob and his wives, and it does not work out well here for Joseph and his brothers. Look at verse 4. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. This begins to get us into the central tension in Joseph's story. It's the tension between human agency, human sinfulness, and God's sovereignty. As we go through this, we're going to see there's things that happen to Joseph that are good, clearly because God intervenes on his behalf. There are things that happen to Joseph that are bad, that are clearly part of his family's dysfunction. There are things that happen to him that are good because of his skills or insight. There are things that happen to him that are bad because he's kind of a dummy sometimes. So the question is, how do we explain all this? What's the driving force behind his story? Is it sin? Is it injustice? Is it skill? Is it determination? Is it luck? Is it God? Right away we see one of the ways that Joseph is kind of a dummy. Look at verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Now, why did they hate this dream? Well, in this dream, they all bow down and worship Joseph. Now, I don't know if you've had siblings, but can you imagine that breakfast conversation? You're sitting there eating your cereal. Guys, I had this really weird dream last night. Let me tell you about it. You all bowed down and worshipped me because I am so awesome. Isn't that cool? Let's go back to eating your cereal. Well, his brothers are not excited about this at all. They say to him, are you indeed to reign over us? This is the little brother talking, right? Are you indeed to rule over us, the older brothers? So they hated him even more. This is the third time, eight verses in, the third time that we see they hate him, they hate him more, they hate him even more. They hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Joseph has another dream right after this. Now, if it were me, I would have kept this one to myself. But he tells them again, this one ups the ante a little bit because not only do the brothers bow down, but so will dad. Now no one is very happy with Joseph. So there's these dreams, there's this coat thing, there's a whole musical about that. If you want to know more about the coat part of it, you can go watch that. They lead to this situation where, not surprisingly, verse 11, his brothers were jealous of him. Hatred and jealousy. So they begin to plot against Joseph. They want to kill him. They want to make it look like an accident so that they don't get in trouble. Reuben, the oldest brother, says, hey, there's a way that we can do this where we don't kill him, but we can make it look like he's dead. And so they choose that plan and throw Joseph into a well. They take his fancy robe. They cut it up into a bunch of pieces, put blood on it, make it look like he got mauled by an animal. They show their father. Their father thinks that he is dead. Meanwhile, they sell Joseph to some traders. These traders take him to Egypt. They sell him again, this time to a guy named Potiphar, who happens to be the captain of the guard in Pharaoh's army. Pharaoh, of course, is the president of Egypt. Now, again, how much of all of this is God's work? How much of this is the effects of family dysfunction? How much of this is Joseph's sort of youthful lack of situational awareness Whatever it is, the wheels are in motion for ultimately an incredible reunion story to take place. And that's exactly what will happen. And so we're going to hit some of the highlights that lead to that. Look at chapter 39. Joseph is working for this guy, Potiphar. He does well in Potiphar's service. Verse 3, his master saw that the Lord was with him and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him, and he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. Remember, real quickly, all the way back to Genesis 12, what is the call? This family will be a blessing, will be a blessing, will be a blessing. Here it's actually happening. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house And feel. Now, here we begin to get a sense of the pattern of Joseph's story, right? Favor, injustice, favor, injustice, favor, injustice. This is the cycle that Joseph is going to move through. So, Joseph, very successful in Potiphar's house. Not only that, but Joseph is a good looking man. And he catches the eye of Potiphar's wife, and she starts pressuring him to have an affair. He keeps saying, no. This makes her mad. She wants him more. It keeps kind of going back and forth. And then there's this awkward scene where she goes after him one more time, and she grabs his cloak, and he runs out, but he runs out without his cloak. So Joseph's running around Egypt naked, and Potiphar's wife has his clothes, and then she uses that as evidence against him, and he ends up in prison for essentially attempted rape. Okay, so that seems like sort of a negative turn in his story, right? (laughs) But look at what happens here. We're still in chapter 39. Look at verse 21. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And the keeper of the prison put Joseph in charge of the prisoners who were in the prison. Whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Now, this is insight into my sinfulness. I would have escaped. If no one's paying attention to me and I'm in charge of everything, I would have bailed. But Joseph stays there and is faithful to what God has asked him to do. Now, I find it helpful to imagine Joseph as Forrest Gump. This is basically the same story. There's no Jenny, but other than that, it's the same story. Because these crazy things keep happening to Joseph, and he just keeps landing on his feet. Very little of it to do with his own, you know, scheming and smarts. Sort of the opposite of his father, Jacob. So, in prison, Joseph is not only in charge of everything, but his dream life comes back into play. It just so happens that two of Pharaoh's key officials end up in prison, too, for various offenses the chief cupbearer, and the chief baker. One can assume that they probably burnt the toast or, more seriously, tried to poison Pharaoh. They end up in jail. We're not totally sure why. And then while they're there, they have these dreams. And they're troubling dreams, and they sort of bum these guys out, and they're walking around bummed out, and Joseph notices this, and he says, what's up? And they tell him, well, we had these dreams, and we don't know what they mean, and it's troubling our spirit." And so Joseph says, well, I have some experience with dreams. Why don't you tell them to me? I'll, I'll give it a shot. So they do. They tell Joseph the dreams. He is able to interpret them. For the cupbearer, good news. Very soon, he's going to be reinstated back into Pharaoh's court. He'll get his old position back. For the baker, bad news. He will soon be impaled on a pole. That must have been an awkward lunch conversation, right? <laughs> tell me your dreams, guys. Good news, bad news. Both interpretations come true and Joseph says to the cupbearer, "Hey, don't forget about me when you get out." In around chapter 40, look at verse 23, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. So again, this sort of favor and injustice, favor and injustice. 2 years later, Joseph is still in prison when Pharaoh has a troubling dream. And he can't figure out what it means, and he brings in his officials, and they can't figure out what it means either. And so there's this angst about this, and all of a sudden the cupbearer goes, Oh man, whoops. There's totally this guy in prison who's good at dream interpretation. I was supposed to mention that when I got out, but I forgot. My bad. Pharaoh's like, Get that guy in here right now. We need this guy. So Joseph is brought in, and he nails it, he nails the interpretation. This dream happens to be a foreshadowing of a season of prosperity that will be followed by a season of famine. And here's the thing, not only does Joseph nail the interpretation, he also gives a plan of action. Here's a little tip, just total side note, pro tip for job seekers. Come in with a plan of action. <laughs> His plan is this: we should save from this time of abundance so that when we get to the famine, we have Not only stuff to live off of, but stuff to share and sell to other people. Pharaoh's like, This is a great idea. So not only does Joseph get a ticket out of jail, but check this out. Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom is the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all of this, there is none so discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over my house. And all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards the throne will I be greater than you. Pharaoh said to Joseph, See, I have set you over all the land of Egypt. This is quite a promotion. (laughs) Pharaoh took his signet ring from his hand, put it on Joseph's hand, clothed him in garments of fine linen, put a gold chain around his neck, made him ride in his second chariot, that's Hebrew for shotgun. And they called out before him, bow the knee, and thus he set him over all the land of Egypt. This guy's story is just so amazing, right? All these incredible ups and downs. We find out just a little bit after this that Joseph is 30. So for the better part of 13 years, he's been his dad's favorite son. He's been framed by his brothers. He's been sold as a slave. He's been sold again as a slave. He's gained authority in a prominent Egyptian household. He's been unfairly jailed for the better part of a decade. He's prospered in jail. He's been forgotten in jail. And now he is second in command of all of Egypt, just like he planned out with his career coach, right? Now, to compress the rest of the story, the famine happens just like Joseph foresaw in this dream. It hits the land hard. It not only hits Egypt, but it really hits all of Sinai. And it affects Joseph's family back in Canaan. All of this leads to a situation where Jacob, Israel, says to Joseph's brothers, Hey, we need to go to Egypt to get some food. This should sound familiar, right? This is the very same thing that Abraham did. So the brothers go to Egypt looking for some help and Joseph recognizes them. They don't recognize him. He kind of milks this experience. or He sort of toys with them a little bit. But look now at chapter 45. Starting in verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Didn't see that one coming, did they? (laughs) Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near and he said, I'm your brother, Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years. There are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. Now there's one thing that Joseph does consistently get right, and it's this. He's able to attest his good fortune to God's work in his life, God's providence in his life. And it's not just that. It's not just about him. Joseph has his eyes on the bigger picture, the bigger picture of what God is up to in the world. All of this family dysfunction led to the situation where Joseph was able to save his family. But it's not just about his family, right? Because this family is supposed to be this vehicle of blessing for all the other families on the earth. He has a sense of the bigger story that they are a part of. And this perspective comes back again in that text that Nate just read for us. So now look at chapter 50. We're now into the very end of the book of Genesis. Jacob has made his way to Egypt and he's now passed away. And his brothers are starting to freak out. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, It may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. In many ways to be expected, right? So they sent a message to Joseph. They forged a letter. Your father gave this command before he died. Say to Joseph, please forgive the transgressions of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Signed, Jacob. (laughs) Joseph wept when they spoke to him. His brothers also came and fell down before him. Here is the dream coming true. right? The dream that sort of started this whole process. They said, Behold, we are your servants. Now again, think about all the ways that Joseph can respond to this moment. I told you so many different things that he could say in this moment, but Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. Now a couple of just quick applications of the Joseph story, and then we're going to move into the bigger picture in Genesis. So first, Joseph's story illustrates that family reconciliation is possible. We've spent the last couple of weeks looking at family dysfunction from a couple different angles, right? We've talked in particular about how forgiveness is the hard work that we must do to end cycles of dysfunction and Joseph's story shows us it's possible. You can forgive and reconcile and move beyond these cycles of dysfunction. Also, this story is yet another example of God's grace and deliverance. Yes, some of the action in the story is moved forward by sin and dysfunction. Some of the action is moved forward by individual skills. Some of it by good timing, but all of it is covered by God's grace. All of it points towards God's ultimate deliverance. And again, Joseph sees this, not just of him, not just of his brothers, but ultimately for everyone. This is about the bigger story the bigger picture of what God is doing in the world and it all leads it's all wrapped up tied up in Joseph's incredible statement of faith in verse 20 you meant evil against me but God meant it for good now I want to say a couple things about this just two quick disclaimers first this is not an explanation for everything that happens in your life And then second, a lot of times very well-meaning Christians will drop this into a conversation. Going through something tough, horrible, tragic. Oh, don't worry. God means it for good. We do well to heed Joseph's words that come immediately before this in verse 19. Am I in the place of God? No. (laughs) We're not. You don't know what's going on. Now, there are many, many clues throughout joseph's story that god is in fact working good from this evil but joseph is not able to articulate that until the very end of the story so don't go dropping that on grieving people before their process is complete we don't have the right to read that into someone else's story but but it is an incredible statement of faith What you meant for evil, God meant for good. Erwin McManus writes, There are two kinds of uninteresting people. That's a great start to a quote. (laughs) There are those who have not suffered, but then there are those who are trapped in their pain. Suffering is all they know. They wallow in despair. They are all wounds and no scars. Have you ever met someone who is all wounds and no scars? Joseph was able to move from wounds to scars. And again, this is not an easy thing to do. It's incredibly difficult. It requires time, the painful hard work of forgiveness, both giving it and receiving it. But to be able to say that, to be able to say that thing that I went through, that thing that happened to me, It was horrible. It was evil. But it became good. To be able to say that is an incredible statement of faith. That's the assurance of things hoped for. That is a conviction in things unseen. That's having a sense of this bigger story. Someone meant it for evil. But God redeemed it. God made it new. God somehow, in his grace, made it good. Now, this is how the book of Genesis ends. There is one more scene that comes right after this, but it's essentially an epilogue that talks about how Joseph died and how the people of Israel are now in Egypt. And it really is sort of a setup for the book of Exodus. This is how the book ends. The final thought, the resolution of the book of Genesis is this statement, God meant it for good. Now, if you've been here for this series, you know that this word good has been critical to the entire thing, right? It was there right at the very beginning of the way the book starts. The book opens on this huge cosmic level. It describes God's creative process. And what does God say as he's creating It was good it was good it was good it was very good we've talked about this a lot goodness referring to the right ordering of creation the way that God intended things to be this interconnected web of right relationships what the biblical writers call shalom it was good it was good it was very good We've seen there's disruption to this shalom, right? Evil enters into the story. It leads humans to turn their backs on God, to reorder the world the way that they see fit. We call this sin. And as we make our way through Genesis, sin, we see, begins to infect everything, relationships between God and man, between humans and other humans, between humans and creation. And as Genesis unfolds, each story, we see this disease of sin spreading bringing suffering, bringing exploitation, and bringing ultimately death. And yet, throughout the whole thing, the consistent invitation of God is to come back. Come back to relationship. Come back to shalom. God keeps pursuing people, keeps making covenants with people, keeps working to put his broken, dysfunctional family back together. So, the same God who created everything, who created the universe and called it good, takes evil and recreates it into something good. We learned very early on in our study that the book of Genesis was most likely written by Moses. It was written to the people of Israel, the descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, who had recently been freed from slavery in Egypt. That's how the Egypt thing ends, right? Ultimately, they become slaves for 400 years to the Egyptian empire. During that time, they lose this sense of who they are. They lose the story. And so Genesis is this origin story, this identity-forming story for this group of people who have lost it. And in the same way, this book is an origin story for us as well, for human beings, for all of us. Genesis helps us understand how we got to here. And it answers these two deep, profoundly human questions. Do you remember that rabbi story from way back at the beginning? There's this rabbi that goes to teach in a remote village, and he gets lost on his way home, and he ends up running into this Roman military outpost. He knocks on this gate. There's this big, gruff guard on top of the gate. He's like, who are you, and what are you doing here? Rabbi kind of freaks out at first, but he's clever. And he asks the guard, hey, how much do they pay you? And this throws the guard off. He's like, What do you mean? What is that? Who cares? (laughs) Finally, the guard says, They pay me 10 silver coins a day. And remember, the rabbi says, Great, I will pay you twice that if you come home with me and ask me those same two questions every day Who are you and what are you doing here? So, how does Genesis help us answer these questions? Who are you? You are an icon. You are an image-bearer of the creator of the universe. And when God made you, he said, this is good. And what are you doing here? You're bearing witness to the God who makes all things new. Participating with Him in the work of recreation. As the New Testament says, we are. Not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. That is why you are here. So, as we wrap all of this up, may we be deeply rooted in these truths about who we are and what we're doing here. May we not lose hope. May we not succumb and give in to this culture of pessimism. May we overcome evil with good. And may we be a blessing to a world that is crying out for shalom. Pray with me. Father, thank you for the story of Joseph. A good, significant portion of the book of Genesis is dedicated to Joseph's story. And it is a crazy story with all these ups and downs and twists and turns and this pattern of favor and injustice and thank you for his example of faith that at the end of his journey he's able to look back and see that it was good that you had overcome evil with good that you had taken a horrible situation and turned it into a beautiful story of redemption father we come into this place this morning and we are going through many many things that do not feel good where it is difficult to see how you might be at work Maybe it isn't even difficult. Maybe it's impossible to understand how any of what we are experiencing in this moment could be good. Maybe as a result of that, we feel an incredible disconnect from you. It's hard to trust you. And so God, I pray for us in this room right now, wherever we are at, that we just be able to take one step closer to trusting you this morning. One step closer to understanding your goodness and your good purposes, your bigger story. We may never see the whole thing. We may never understand how it all fits together. But may we trust that you truly are making all things new. Help us to be a part of that process, too. God, help us to participate in that with you. To bring that recreation to our families, to our neighborhoods, to our places of work, to our circles of influence. May we be a blessing to the people that we are around and in relationship with. Give us the strength to continue the hard work of overcoming evil with good. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.